morning, everyone. I'll try not to shout too much because I know some of you have got delicate heads. Um, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, I'm a bit of an accidental historian, but we'll come to that. Um, but I'm very grateful to be here. I'm also very sorry that Tiffany isn't here because it was going to be quite nice for me to be the less controversial member of the panel for once. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a little bit about Queer Britain, because every time I sit down next to somebody here, they go, so what about Queer Britain? So I'll talk to you a little bit about Queer Britain, um, and then uh, what I want to do is take you through the four questions that I was given. I, I seem to have been given one more than anybody else to answer in my slot, which is nice. Curiosity is always a good thing. That's why we're all here, in a way. Um, but first of all, I want to... Um, slightly takes task one piece of wording that we all keep using um, and this conference is about difficult histories. I just want to say difficult for who? Because for me the difficult history is the one that's leaving us all out. You know mainstream history is the one that I found difficult and that's why I'm standing up here today. So Queer Britain is an idea that's turning into a reality. Uh, it's a museum which will be for all LGBTQ people to see themselves in. Uh, it will be based in London but it will cover the whole of the UK and everybody within the UK who has come from other places. Um, it's going to be important that it is not just a bricks and mortar museum but also digital because it's very important to us that we, we aren't there to try and steal everybody else's LGBTQ artefacts. We're there to help highlight LGBTQ history wherever it may be. Um, and so in its first year, Queer Britain has spent its first year raising enough money to have two members of staff to get the job done, uh, getting itself an office uh, which has very kindly been donated to us by MC Saatchi, um, which is a great place to have an office if you're trying to build a brand. It's full of useful tips. Um, it has spent that year getting itself set up in technical terms as a charity uh, and as a company, um, getting itself a proper management structure uh, with a board. And it has also spent that year reaching out and making a lot of relationships uh, with other museums and archives. And I have to say, <coughs> we've been met with open arms. Um, as soon as people realise we're not trying to nick their artefacts, they're really lovely to us. Um, and we have a number of plans, some of them I can talk about and some of them I can't, because <coughs> we're now moving into our second year phase. We're looking for major donors and sponsors. Uh, we're beginning to look at potential buildings with a little twinkle in our eye. Um, we're also um, starting to be given things which we actually don't have a space to save at the moment and I have to say thank you to Bishopsgate Archives who have said that they will hold on to stuff for us until we've got somewhere to display it. We've had our first digital, um, digital exhibition which was in Basingstoke um, which is part of our commitment to say we're not going to be all about London um, and we are moving on to look at how we can for example tour the UK um, to actually hear what people want uh, but also to hear the stories that people have to tell us because the big impetus behind the, uh, the idea of the museum was that we're losing LGBTQ history 
um, and we're losing it quite fast through people dying, through artifacts being forgotten um, or misremembered. Um, and that's where a lot of the impetus came from, particularly for me to get involved, um, because I had previously done an oral history of the Gay Liberation Front because I was so concerned that vital members of it were dying and people were misremembering the actions of the Gay Liberation Front to help shore up what they wanted people to do now. People were distorting the politics and beliefs to fit the current situation. Um, and that's propaganda, not history. Uh, and so that's how I got involved in the issues. Um, and I think for anyone who isn't involved with the museum world or with the history world, it can be quite daunting. Um, it can be full of jargon, it can be full of hierarchies, it can be full of rivalries, um, it can be full of concerns about value and stuff like that. But I always try to cling to um, something that the director of the Museum of London once said, which is, well, what is a museum? It's a building full of interesting shit. <laughs> um, so, let me, from that, and I'll be around over lunch if anyone wants to ask me more questions about the museum, let me take you into looking at the questions that I was given to answer. Um, and the first one was, as politicians and, mo and others issue calls for new shared narratives and unity, how might museums balance demands for a more critical engagement with the past, on the one hand, with their responsibility to, sh to craft shared histories and identity on the other? Well, firstly, I don't believe most politicians are calling for real unity. I think they're only calling for people to support their particular views. Um, I think that um, demagoguery is spreading, um, and I think it's our duty to resist it. Uh, you heard a lot about that yesterday afternoon and evening, and I was particularly interested to hear the stories about Warsaw, because although I hadn't been to the museums that were being talked about. I recently went to the Museum of the Warsaw Uprising, and it was very clear that the role of the Catholic Church in occupied Warsaw had completely been whitewashed, uh, and, and very clear that that was the case, and a lot of other things had been <coughs> minimised. So I, don't, I, I think you know, politicians don't want shared narratives, they want their narratives. I don't believe that there's any conflict between critical engagement with the past and crafting shared histories and identities unless you think there is only one history um, or only one identity that's valid. Um, and I think that way lies totalitarianism at the end of the road and I don't believe anyone in this room is supporting that. I think that by sharing our differences we often find our similarities. Uh, LGBT people share a common humanity with the rest of the world and by shining a spotlight on our real-life stories and our real-life history, we show that as well as validating our existence and finding common ground with the others who are of our own group. Um, I did something for uh, LGBT History Month a couple of years ago called Lost LGBT Cardiff which was a Facebook page where people could record their memories of LGBT venues in Cardiff which had disappeared. Um, and one of the things that it led to was an enormously uh, edifying 
discussion on what I'd always thought of as a very straight message board, which was primarily for city planners and people who were interested in whether Cardiff was going to have a new skyscraper or not, as heterosexual people on that board discussed the venues that their friends had been to over the years. Uh, and it changed the whole tenor of the discussion on that board and showed a solidarity that I was surprised and pleased to see. Um, when we did another exhibition, which was called Icons and Allies, which was an absolutely straightforward posters of LGBTQ people and allies from around Wales. Absolutely straightforward, English text, Welsh text, picture, basic stuff. We toured it around a bit and consistently we got two responses, one of which was, I didn't know they were gay, and the other of which was, oh, I didn't know they were Welsh. <laughs> so, you know, and that made a huge difference to people. Uh, especially to young people seeing that and seeing that there was a Welsh LGBTQ identity that they could, they could identify with. It's a common feature of uh, emerging identity-based <coughs> movements that they seek their history and sometimes we do it by reaching a little too far. I remember when I came out in the late 70s, it felt like everybody was gay really because we were just seizing everybody from history. Uh, often on very flimsy pretexts, frankly. <laughs> and often people that we would now, we would certainly identify them as gender non-conforming or, or some other form of non-binary or stuff that's going on, but we would not call them lesbian or gay in such a straightforward, down-the-line, um, immediate way these days. Um, we tend to overclaim because we don't have the tools or the terminology to be accurate and because we want to show people are on our side. Um, and I find it interesting that some of the people that we overclaimed for on gay history in the 80s are now slightly being overclaimed for on trans history because trans people are only just beginning to carve a real sense of history out. Um, and you see the same things happening. Um, but we do it because there is so much that's been hidden by a single dominant narrative that we have to fight for our space alongside that. Um, even when we know it to be the case that somebody was lesbian or bisexual, uh, quite often custodians of someone's reputation, if they're a public figure, may well seek to deny it. Um, we've got lots of examples of people whose letters have been burnt, whose diaries have been hidden, um, parts of whose diaries have been redacted, uh, lots of cases of people doing things like refusing permission for use of stuff which might indicate that that person was not entirely heterosexual. Um, and we have the case of the Marquis of Anglesey, which I'll talk about a little later, where someone was very nearly disappeared out of history by his own family. So, how do museums position themselves as shapers of national and local identities in a contested and divided historical landscape, I was asked. Well, history has always been contested. I mean, my degree was in medieval history, and trust me, until you've read a load of monks all talking about the same event from completely different perspectives, you haven't seen contested history. <laughs> you have to learn who their patrons were, um, who was likely to attack their monastery, um, who they'd heard from last, 
I actually found it a really good grounding for my life as a political lobbyist, which is where I went to later, because it's all about sorting out the rumours and who's influenced by who. Um, but it's always being contested. And museums, insofar as they have a duty, I think, can help us all to analyse and think critically about the past and what it means for us by showing that there are multiple viewpoints on things that happen and asking themselves, whose version of this am I promoting? Because at the moment, we need to do that quite a lot more. Why do I believe X and not Y about this? Where are the other narratives about this which might shed a richer light on this piece of history? What we collect and, we, and what we don't illustrates our values and allegiances. The Marquis of Anglesey, as I said, nearly got disappeared. And when the National Trust started to look at LGBTQ histories within their buildings, his was an obvious one to look at, but all of his stuff is lost. Literally, all they have is his grooming, um, his grooming set, um, his hairbrush, his tweezers, things like that. Everything else was either sold in an estate sale when he went bankrupt, or was burnt, destroyed, or otherwise hidden by members of his family. And for many years, if you went to his home in Anglesey, you would see rooms full of other relatives who were heroes of Waterloo, or who had friendships with famous writers and artists, and lots and lots of family photographs, but literally nothing of the Marquis. And when the National Trust decided to do something which included the Marquis, they actually had to open up an extra room, and they had to appeal to local people because the family hadn't kept anything but all the local people who had rather admired the Marquis had all kept bits and pieces and they repopulated that room with the, the handed down family memories of other people of the Marquis. So LGBT historiography which is mostly recent, shows us how much things change according to current views. The terminology that I have to deal with in talking about my own history, because if you're LGBTQ and you got past 60, you become de facto a historical artefact. <laughs> uh, people start asking you about the stuff. The terminology that I use changes from gay in the 60s and 70s to lesbian and gay in the 80s uh, to LGBT and then LGBT a whole bunch of other ones. So we'll, in Wales, we just give up. We say LGBT plus because we're lazy. Um, but this, you know, shows how difficult it can be in defining people, in telling their stories from the past, and in claiming people for particular strands. The perfect example of this is who, who threw the first brick at Stonewall. Actually, we'll never know. But. If you're gay, you say it was someone gay. If you're lesbian, you say it was somebody lesbian. If you're trans, you say it was somebody trans. You appropriate identities all over the place in order to validate yourself. And we kind of have to get past that um, and try and be a little more flexible and a little less scared of not having enough people to hero worship. Um, is it possible, I was asked, to celebrate and represent historically marginalised communities in mainstream museums? Well, absolutely it is. And if you haven't heard of Dan Vaux and his queer tours of the V&A, please go and find out, because they're amazing. Um, he literally has a series of trained volunteers who will now take people around the V&A pointing out LGBTQ um, meanings of stuff where it isn't on 
the everyday label. Um, the Tate exhibition, Queer Britain, where our name comes from, was amazing and had a tremendous number of things. And I'm a lesbian, but I can feel for the stuff that comes from other parts of our history. And standing in front of Oscar Wilde's prison door was just an incredible feeling. Um, there's a lot that goes on around this, and unfortunately at the moment there's such an appetite for it that actually sometimes mainstream museums are over-eager to designate and explain stuff. Only this week um, I sent a rather stern tweet back to the Poor Museum of London um, because they put a series of 1970s and 80s um, gay badges up on, online. Um, and there was one which was a pink triangle with two safety pins in. And bless them, somebody at the Museum of London had said, this shows punk influence on the gay culture. No, it didn't. I was there when those badges were designed. It showed that someone was saying that they were a gay man by the pink triangle and the safety pins were that they wanted to practice safer sex. So don't pick them up unless that was what you were going to do. Um, and that's such a simple piece of misinformation about something that is less than 30 years old. We're beginning to over-egg the pudding in terms of over-explaining stuff without asking people who are still alive, who know the answers. So it's important to do that. And I think at Queer Britain we very much believe that it helps to have a balance of specialist and generalist. We don't intend to rob anyone else's collection. We want to highlight and celebrate as well as building our own narratives um, and we hope that that's going to be more balanced than having to pick only from an existing fairly elitist narrative that's not really about us but we want to invite guest curators um, to highlight the unseen parts of other collections um, and particular strands of those collections on a regular basis um, and to work with us alongside us. Um, it's not just about celebrating either. Sometimes it can be very difficult and unpleasant, but it's important to remind people of stuff. And I have to say, I talk about Oscar Wilde's um, prison door, but actually the thing that has most affected me, and affected me as someone who was not affected by it historically, um, was another thing that the National Trust did, where they were trying to illustrate why a gay man, obviously a gay man, had fled the country and built um, his amazing house from abroad because he didn't dare come back to Britain because in his time, gay men who were found guilty of gay sex would be hung. Uh, and they did that by putting up in one room a noose for every gay man who was hung during his lifetime in Britain. Uh, and again, that was incredibly striking, um, an incredibly simple way to make a really clear point about what had been going on. So these things can be done, and what's more, they can be done very easily. Dan Vaux, who did the Queer Tours, came down to Cardiff for the weekend very recently, and on Sunday morning, he went to the National Museum, and he literally, as he walked through the rooms, he tweeted us a queer tour of stuff in that museum that was not LGBTQ labelled, but that was really useful to know about. Um, and now we're going to be working with the museum on that. Um, sometimes I have to say we're relatively lucky because it does feel like LGBTQ narratives and history are this year's big thing in museum world. Um, but I sometimes wonder, and I hope you won't be too offended, if we're popular 
because dead queers are a lot easier to deal with than the live ones sometimes. Um, much less of a pain in the bum. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last thing I was asked was to create cohesive identities. What does society need from 21st century museums? And I think we all know that we need some fresh thinking. We need to take another look at those millions of acquisitions. I mean, the Museum of London has six million acquisitions sitting on shelves waiting to be displayed. There's got to be a load of stuff that's of LGBTQ interest in there, and they're not the only museum in that position. There's a load of stuff on the back shelves as well as what's already on display that would be of huge interest about our history. I think we all agree that we need wider perspectives and dialogue. I think we all agree that we need some support for new ideas. And I have to say, existing museums have been both generous and supportive to queer Britain. And the queer tours are a triumph where they exist now. I think we need to stop worrying so much about cohesion. It's not helpful to try and force us into a straitjacket. But I think we need to think more about alliances, collaborations, and helping people find their voices. LGBT History Month and the way it's grown massively in the last five years shows that there is a huge thirst, particularly in young people, and not just in LGBTQ young people. You've got to remember young people generally are much more diverse now around both how they define themselves but also how they relate to other people. Um, they're very willing to learn more if it's offered in a way that's accessible, participative and popular. And I want to leave you with one final thought. I've been talking particularly about LGBTQ stuff, um, but I hope that some of what I've said also pertains to other marginalised groups within museums. What I would say is I'd like you to consider whether um, LGBTQ history is kind of like the little black dress of history because it's, it's there in every situation. It's usually fairly discreet, but there's going to be something of it absolutely everywhere and it's going to suit every situation that you look at in history. It's going to be in there somewhere. A bit of a clumsy metaphor, but I hope that you'll think about it. And thank you very much for listening to me maunder on for 20, 20 minutes.